you guys say you have achieved a 99% recycle rate on a single family home. And so that's how we achieve rates like that, by just consciously taking the building apart. This is not just about our company. This is about industry change. It's just demolition is something that came from a time in the 1900s where we thought everything was abundant and infinite and we could just dump it and move on to the next. And it's this is really a callback to what how we used to remove buildings because resources are precious. That's today's guest, Adam Corneal. He's a revolutionary in the area of construction waste. And he's in the business of deconstructing homes, an idea that got lost when humans determined that our resources were not worth recycling or upcycling. And I'm going to let Adam fill you in on the rest of the details. And if it's your first time listening to the pod, my name is Mike Kenoki, and I'm going to come right out and tell you, as a residential home builder and remodeler, I build and I waste. And talking to Adam inspired me and made me feel a lot better about the future of construction in North America. If you find value in the content of the pod today, please share the pod directly from your phone to social media and tag myself at the contracting handbook or Adam at unbuilders, but that's enough for me. Let's roll tape. Basically, how do you make two by fours, make money, reclaim two by fours. So all the, all the goods beyond the wood, we, we donate to charity. If a builder calls us, I would say we, we on average quote two or three jobs for them before they hire us. Is it going to be mainstream affordable? You know, you spend a million dollars building a new house, but you want to get rid of an old one for 10 grand. There's a disconnect there for me where in Canada and the U.S. combined, the the construction industry, construction demolition generate about 150 million tons of waste every year. That 150 million tons of waste generates about 750 million tons of CO2 into the atmosphere every year, just in Canada and the U.S. from construction. This The same amount as 163 million cars a year running, because we know that people make the decision on, on money, not on the environment. But there's this beautiful environmental narrative that is very impactful. How do we get an unbuilder in every town? Welcome back to the Contracting Handbook Podcast, everyone. Today, I have a guest, and the business motto is, we don't demolish your building, we unbuild it. What does this mean? Well, today, I have Adam Corneal, and he's founder and owner-operator of Unbuilders Deconstruction. Adam well, Corneal, thanks for being here. And Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Michael. One of the things I noticed right away when I was checking these guys out, when I first found them was on the website, you guys say you have achieved a 99% recycle rate on a single family home in Vancouver, BC. Um, we, we've achieved that a few times, actually, uh, including last month again. Incredible. Yeah, I mean, we, we approach the removal of a building from a, a different perspective than traditional demo. We're looking at a building at where's the value? How do we maximize that value by salvaging it in the materials? And what we can't salvage, we recycle. And what we can't recycle is then trash. So it's it's sort of reverse um, thinking from demo, which is just smash and smash and dump as fast as possible. Um, and so that's how we achieve rates like that by just consciously taking the building apart. And we're we're very uh, fortunate in in the Vancouver region here, in in southern BC, where 
there's a lot of outlets for all these materials. So there's recycling channels for just about everything that could come out of a building. Yeah, it seems like BC, it seems like uh, Vancouver area in particular is really on the cutting edge of, of building science and building techniques in general. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of very interesting and innovative progressive companies in this region um, across the board in construction from like prefab builders to, to product suppliers. It's, it's a really exciting place to be, to be an innovator in construction. Yeah, I bet. Uh, what kind of response do you get when you tell people what you do for work? Uh, I, it's, it's very positive. I'd say that the vast majority of people are, are big supporters of what we do, at least in theory. Um, and people, people typically are pretty excited by what we do. Um, I, I mean, a lot of people are like, how'd you come up with this? It's like, I, I didn't come up with this. This is deconstruction is happening in many cities in the U S and it's as old as construction itself. It's just demolition is something that came from a time in the 1900s where we thought everything was abundant and infinite and we could just dump it and move on to the next. And it's, this is really um, sort of a, a callback to what, how we used to remove buildings because resources are precious. Um, so yeah, I'd say, I'd say most people get, get pretty excited and almost, almost everyone has a story about salvaging something or reclaimed this or that, or their, their parents or their grandparents, always had stacks of wood and nails in the basement. And I'd say every, everyone has some sort of relatable story to what we do in, in our service. That's interesting. And it's got me thinking kind of off the cuff here about current market conditions and things getting so expensive to build new, you know, easily 30% more in a lot of places, 40% more even to build a new home or something. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there might be, a greater push for this uh, as a result. And, and are you, are you seeing a greater push for it as a result of current market conditions or were you kind of already up and running and things are just humming along? Uh, no, I would say that the demand for deconstruction and, and salvage materials continues to increase every year. Um, and when materials like the cost of lumber 12 months ago got so high that all of a sudden reclaim wood even for like structural framing uses became appealing because when wood gets that high, um, then reclaimed is all of a sudden comparable. Um, whereas typically a, a reclaimed wood can be more expensive than the new lumber. So the, the high pricing is, is good for the, the deconstruction salvage business um, because it, it makes our materials more affordable because they're, they don't have the same market conditions. They're more stable. And most reclaimed sellers are have not increased their prices by that 30 to 40 percent. So it's actually a fairly stable market. And it's you're typically a local supply, so it's steady um, in whatever city you're in. So there's there's a lot of benefits. Um, and yeah, we've definitely seen an uptick mostly in policy um, in several mm -hmm. cities, both in Canada and the US, where you're seeing municipalities take on mandating deconstruction for a variety of reasons. I'd say the big one is either overflowing landfills or, or just climate policy. Um, but it, it, it not only makes good sense for the environment, there's, there's financial metrics there that make deconstruction and salvaging um, pretty, pretty viable as well as then just the social impact as well between 
Um, you know, we've got some, some partnerships with a few charities, the, the big one that everyone knows being Habitat for Humanity um, and the reuse people, but Habitat is taking um, proceeds from used building materials that they sell and restore and building affordable housing as well. So there's this social impact wrapped in with deconstruction as well. That's that makes people feel good. So yeah, there's, there is only the, the demand for deconstruction is only going to increase. And um, you know, I, I've, I've been saying for a while that, but you know, over the next decade, I, I would, I anticipate that deconstruction replaces demolition as the norm. I'd love to hear it. I'd love to see that, you know, as a, general contractor having done a lot of remodels because the labor cost is there. I'm not paying my, even my laborer. There's a certain amount of nails in a board that at, at, after we reach a certain point, I'm not, I'm not paying him to remove that them anymore. How do you deal with this? A labor-based industry for sure. The, the timing of, of this podcast is interesting because I, I had a call yesterday with a, with a company that is um, in their second stage of prototyping and automation, the, the automating the denailing process of, of wood. Mm. Um, so oh. there are some people working on how do you take the labor out of salvage materials as much as possible to automate it. Cause yeah, we're, we're, we're in that labor crunch, I think everywhere in, in North America that we just don't have the people to do the work and our business is very labor intensive. So, um, I, I hope that they're successful in building, building that machine, but, um, there's certain materials that at this point are basically just, just a loss in terms of, um, in profitability, uh, you know, two by fours and two by six, by the time you take the nails out of it, you're not going to recover the cost to do that. So um, that's, that's sort of been the big challenge that I've laid in front of our company and, and for myself from day one is how, basically how do you make two by fours make money, reclaim two by fours because, because of that challenge, mm -hmm. the bigger timber. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's, there's good money in the bigger timber and that's, that's been salvaged and sold for forever. Um, mm -hmm. and the, the typical big reclaimed wood outfits are, are buying and processing the big timber, but it's a smaller dimensional lumber that comes out of residential houses primarily that for me, that's the bigger challenge. Like the, the big timber is a low hanging fruit. How do we, how do we make it financially viable to deconstruct and salvage even the two by fours? And I mean, we're not there to be honest, two by two by fours are a loss. And, and basically we recoup the money from the other goods um, because I don't want to just start saying all two by fours go in the bin now. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's been, that's been one of the challenges I've laid before our company is to, to be able to milk, milk the two by fours to make some money off them too. But we are definitely not there. That is an interesting challenge right there. That, and that's, I mean, throw away or put them in my burn pile for a bonfire yeah. or something, but that only gets one more use out of them. It isn't the best use, I suppose. Um, so are there, so that's, that's really interesting about the, the automated nail removing company. Um, are there other specialists in particular, like that take floors apart, siding, or are you just doing everything? Is it your, you and your crew? Do you have other people come in? to take stuff away? Um, so our crew does the, the labor side of the deconstruction for sure. Uh -huh. So taking the whole structure apart. Um, we typically subcontract the abatement process. So getting the asbestos and the high lead concentrations out of the buildings first. Mm -hmm. um, that's usually done by abatement specialists. Uh, it's done under our service. We just subcontract it. Um, and then 
the uh, the excavation to removing that foundation is, is something that we also provide under a service, but we typically subcontract. So there's, there's other companies we're working with and, and they've become accustomed to what we do. Um, like, especially the abatement companies, they have to do a more, more thorough job than they typically do from demolition, knowing that our crew is coming in and then handling every, every layer after them. So when they miss something, they're potentially exposing our team to toxic materials and, um, yeah, so it's there is some changes that they have to make, and we have to make sure we trust those, those sub trades. So we built really strong partnerships with abatement companies, excavation companies that know our our program that can work with us, and um, that that's crucial for our success is to to really have some strong partnerships in a lot of different avenues. And I want to go back a little bit into you pull all the stuff out, clean it up. It's got to go somewhere, and. Storage is always an issue. And then storage also consumes energy uh, in the form of, especially if you're heating a space, where does all the stuff get stored? So all the, all the goods beyond the wood, we, we donate to charity. So all the cabinets, appliances, those are all ending up typically at, at Habitat for Humanity here. Okay. Um, so we're, we're operating in two regions, the Vancouver region and Vancouver Island region. So we've got those partnerships with the Habitat stores um so they they take in most now they don't take everything so there's materials that there's there's lower value in them that in other areas probably could be salvaged and resold or even just given to to people that we currently aren't able to salvage because they won't take them we don't have space to store them so there could definitely be more salvaging than than we do but we're already hitting pretty high numbers um and then the lumber we've got we've got our main headquarters um in vancouver we also have a yard in richmond we've got a yard on vancouver island so we kind of have wood all over the place um mm -hmm. because yeah the storage is is the issue um i mean you don't want to leave it like we we band our materials into lifts but you don't want to leave it out um too long like we've definitely had some lifts from a couple summers ago where we've busted them open and they've taken some some damage from being sitting around too long so mm -hmm. um yeah that is that is sort of the one one of the tricks of the the game is how do you move that material um and that's and that's why we're moving we've got a second company so the unbuilders is the deconstruction company um but we also have heritage lumber which is our our reclaimed wood um brokerage so we're selling raw material but we're also processing it into products um and we're about to scale that side of the business in in the fall um and 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 merge and acquire a, a manufacturing company and and that's that's really how you're going to churn this material um and not have it sitting in yards you have to make products out of it and i believe you have to eventually make buildings out of it again um and so that's sort of our our longer term trajectory is is first we're making products and eventually either partnering with with builders and prefab companies or um, becoming one over time how do you work around people's expectations just to tear something down as fast as possible instead of doing environmental good? That's, I mean, that is the biggest challenge we have. I'd say that on average, um, if a builder calls us, I would say we, we on average quote two or three jobs for them before they hire us. So it's usually like get our pricing. There might be a little bit of sticker shock from what they're used to a demo um, in terms of pricing on the first one, then they learn to expect it and they, they learn more about us. So they hear, you know, good things. We've got a pretty good reputation um, and they eventually get us in the fold, but 
there, there is a big learning curve because not only, not only is our service different, but behind the scenes, the, the, the way that it works is also different. So when we deconstruct say a house and we donate the materials to charity, we get those materials appraised and the owner gets a tax receipt and that tax receipt helps combat the financial um, increase from deconstruction over mm. demolition. And, and so a lot of the times we're cost competitive because of that tax receipt. Um, sometimes we're cheaper, sometimes we're not. Um, it all depends on the project. But that, that whole business model, we have to educate our clients on to begin with. And then we have to educate them on how this is going to be different than demolition, what their expectations are. Um, so there, there is a big educational component up front. Um, and yeah, as I said, it, it usually a builder takes a few times before they'll hire us once they really understand our service um, and how it works. And, and it's, it, it sounds very complicated, but we take care of the complication. Like we do all the paperwork for the charities and the appraisal and all of that. Um, but, you know, for some people, they're like, wow, this sounds too complicated. I'm just going to demolish this one. We'll get you on the next. That's like the most common thing we get from a new client. We'll get you on the next. Absolutely. One. Yeah. They're like, no, and it's, I'm stuffing and, this in a dumpster. Yeah. And at a certain point, I'm like, well, I'll get you on the next planet. <clears throat> oh, I like it. Get you on the next planet. That would be a real challenge. And I wonder, you know, there's this move towards passive house and a lot of people saying everything should be a passive house. And for me to build a really high, high performance house here with what I've got available, I'd say it adds five to 6%. And yeah. I think, I think in the lower 48, actually it's more because of the products they're using and I'm not actually building the same house as they are because I don't have, you know, all the stuff they do, but right. So it puts, my house is in a, you know, it puts me in kind of a different category and a certain kind of client can afford it or is willing to spend the extra money because like many of my guests, like Jake Bruton has said, people just don't care about efficiency. And the whole point, the whole selling point of a, of a high performance home is comfort and, and healthy air, basically. Yeah. But what I'm in a roundabout way getting to is, does your service end up being a lot of times for more wealthy clients? Is it going to be mainstream affordable? Because you say we're not going to be demolishing in 10 years. We're going to be on building. I don't know if I'd say it's going to be affordable. Like the cost of deconstruction is going to go down by 50% because everyone's doing it. It will come down inevitably because there will be more demolition companies that provide this service. Mm -hmm. The competition will drive prices down. Um, but I would, I would say, and I think it'll be mainstream in most, most municipalities, most regions, not all though, there's going to be areas where it's not going to make sense. But for the most part, if you are purchasing a property that has a perfectly good house on it, that you want a different house, you're going to demolish the whole thing. Um, at a certain point, we have to ask ourselves, should you be able to just tear down that perfectly good house when we're in a housing crisis for $10,000? Or is the problem that we expect demolition to be so cheap and it, it really shouldn't be? Mm. 
you know, you spend a million dollars building a new house, but you want to get rid of an old one for 10 grand. There's a disconnect there for me where it's, it's like, you know, first service is 40,000. There's all these other benefits that are part of it. Um, and you're going to then go spend a million dollars on the house. You probably paid your realtor 50 to hundred grand in realtor fees. How much do you pay your mortgage broker? There's all these fees behind the scenes, but then the, the demolition deconstruction contractors, it's not like we're sitting on a mountain of money. Um, you know, we broke even um, in the last quarter and, and, and we're charging what we are because that's, that's, that's the only way we can keep, keep going. Um, <clears throat> so at a certain point, I think there's going to be an expectation change in what the cost of removing a building is. Um, and I think that's going to be the thing that tips the scales, but right now, yeah, I mean, it's, you, you don't have low income people, definitely not in this area that can number one, even afford to buy anything, let alone to afford to buy a property and tear it down. A year we we are dealing with typically higher income individuals, mm-hmm. um, but I I think it'll become mainstream, not because of the affordability side, but because of the the waste diversion, the way that we're moving with climate policy in in a lot of areas, and I think that will spread. Um, and what, what we're working on right now behind the scenes is actually doing the cost metrics because in Vancouver, for instance, our landfill is going to close in 2028 because it's overflowing. It was supposed to close in 2040. We're, we're, we're now 12 years ahead of schedule. Mm. Of, and that's because of construction waste. So we're demolishing so many buildings so fast that our landfill is going to have to close. All of us taxpayers are going to have to fund a $100 million purchase of a piece of land to make a new landfill. It costs about... million a year to operate it. So what we're trying to build is what is the cost metrics for every taxpayer to build that new landfill to continue to have $10,000 demos happening versus $40,000 decons. Because I I believe over the long term, it's actually more costly for all of us to continue to demolish and overflow our landfills. But we're we're working on the actual numbers to see where it comes out because I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm very curious. Yeah, and you and you have to, to 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 quell the skeptics, right? Because if someone listening to this heard earlier where you said that there's a there's a go, there's a rebate, a tax rebate, uh, they're going to say, oh, well, it's just the taxpayers are paying for it. But when you put it in terms of a hundred million dollar land purchase and twenty million dollars to run it, well, it's you could probably see pretty quickly where a where a rebate instead of buying a new landfill is going to start to, to show the difference there. And I think that's a, that's a have that going after that math is really important. And, and, and that's just talking about financially, right? Which is 99.9% of all decisions are made. Exactly. So that's what, that's where my focus is. I mean, when you, when you do look at the environmental impact, it's enormous. Mm -hmm. Like, so in Canada and the U S combined the, the construction industry, construction demolition generate about 150 million tons of waste every year. And when that decomposes in landfills, it decomposes into methane, which is 23 times worse than CO2 for heating the planet. So it generates that 150 million tons of waste generates about 750 million tons of CO2 into the atmosphere every year, just in Canada and the U S from construction. So we're talking about, this, the same amount as 163 million cars a year running is what we're throwing in the landfills right now from construction. This is enormous. Like it, it is a massive contributor to climate change and, and 
you know, whether I know there's differences opinion on, on, on climate change, although that seems to be more people, more and more people every year coming on board with the fact that we are definitely changing this planet with our industry and our, um, and our ways. Um, but it's, it's staggering. And I've, I've got a two-year-old son. I mean, that's what really fuels me is I see opportunity financially, business-wise in this, in this business, but I'm, I'm fueled by trying to, I love the construction industry. I want to make it better. And I want to make, I want to leave this planet better than, than I was born into it. And so that's kind of what fuels me and the company. Um, and so that's where we brought on these interesting business models to try to make it financially viable because we know that people make the decision on, on money, not on the environment, but there's this beautiful environmental narrative that is very impactful. I like that, you know, you're, you see the future as deconstruction and, and that people will kind of move that direction. I can, I can guarantee you that everybody likes a good reuse. I don't care who you are. You see a piece of wood that was one thing and you turn it into something else. It doesn't matter who you are. You will think that is cool. Yeah. You'll think that is awesome. This piece in the house, whatever it is, no matter how much money you make or don't make. Yeah. So I can see how this process will become sexy like that will become, Oh, this is just what we do. It's a, it's a, it's, it's fantastic. For um, sure. Well, we, we see that like before on builders, I, I'm actually a certified passive house builder myself. Okay. So I was building passive house. Um, and we build a high performance home. We put reclaimed floors in it because we were already sort of doing the circular economy with reclaimed wood back then. And after all the performance, all the bells and whistles they had on their house, the biggest thing they talked about was those reclaimed floors. Or if we did a dining room table out of their original basement beams, yeah, the table was the whole thing. They were just so proud and loved to talk about it. And so the story that these materials tell is, is powerful um, and people love it. So you're, yeah, you're right. You're right about that. We've, we've seen that on so many occasions. I love it. How do we train every contractor out there to sell your services? Uh, that's a great question that we're, <laughs> we're in the process of trying to, trying to figure out. Um, I, I'd say that, as I said, it usually takes a few conversations because the, the, the educational curve is, is seemingly steep just because it's different than what people are used to. So I, I would say it takes a little bit of digging. We're in the process of rebuilding our website. So it's more just straightforward facts um, for that mm. to take away some of those questions. So if a builder or a homeowner is curious about our service, I mean, it's, our website's pretty informative now, but we're trying to make it just more punchy. Um, you, can, you can get a lot of information uh, online for you know, what, what the service entails and what to expect. Um, but yeah, I mean, really it's, it's, it's that initial conversation with someone from our team to explain the service. We've got, you know, short documentation, like one pagers of, of how the donation process works. How does the deconstruction process work? Um, so we really put a lot of emphasis on that education with, with anyone. Um, and, and honestly, I love talking with contractors, developers that are the naysayers as well, because, you know, maybe they're, maybe they've got an angle that we haven't heard yet. And it's there, there's a challenge there that we need to figure out how, Oh, that's a great point. How do we overcome that? So that the next person that brings that up, we, we do have an answer for that. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it takes education and, and I'm actually teaching um, a deconstruction project management course in September at BCIT here in, in Van, Vancouver or in Burnaby. Um, and it's the first deconstruction program in Canada um, that's ever run. I think there's been some in the US, a, a few, um, but basically the industry is looking to educate the rest of the industry on deconstruction through the technical institutes now. So that's why I think this is just, just the drop in the bucket. This is just the beginning of the deconstruction industry. Um, and we're, we're out there leading, leading the charge on that wave with a few other great contractors. Thank you for segueing into my next question. <laughs> because on your site, you state there could be 75,000 jobs created in Canada uh, in, in the area of deconstructing of upcycling. Um, and new RT, you're going to be teaching courses on top of running the business. How about, how do you scale the vision to franchises? And I know you said there's some other companies starting this. Are you going to franchise? How do we get an unbuilder in every town? Yeah, that's, uh, that, that is our plan. Um, it, it, we're, we're still for, for the last couple of years. I mean, ever since we, we, um, launched on builders, the thought was we're going to franchise this. So we'll, we'll, we'll get our market here. We'll, we'll try to get a good market share here, show profitability, show a good business franchise to other regions. Um, whether it's going to be franchising or licensing, which is, they're, they're similar in the approach. Um, that's, that's to be finalized in the next 12 months, but that that's definitely the plan we've got. Um, we basically have our service packaged behind the scenes between the, the education process, the estimating process, and then the whole service. Um, so we're, we're basically building that, that package. Um, we have been for a few years so that we can either franchise or license to every, every city in North America. Um, and yeah, there are some other deconstruction contractors in the U S primarily, um, a lot of demolition companies do a little bit of salvage because they just know that there's, there's value, especially with big timber. But, um, I think that we're looking at, at it, um, on a bigger scale We're we're, and that's, that comes down to our mission and what drives us, not only myself, but our whole team. And, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm driven by impact. The reason I'm not building passive houses anymore is because I looked at the fact I could build a couple high performance homes a year as a small builder. And that's great. We, have a good influence on a few families every year, or it can launch a deconstruction company, push, you know, lobby, lobby for policy change, lobby for industry change, franchise this company across every city in North America. And the impact that we will have is far greater than building a few performance homes every year. And for me, that's what drives me is I want the biggest impact, positive impact I can have as possible. And that's where that's the entire approach behind on builders is this is not just about our company. This is about industry change and we want to influence that across the board. So we're even working with some of our competitors because I want them to deconstruct too. At the end of the day, I mean, we want to receive their, their wood. We want to be the outlet for their wood, but you know, that's, that's the business model of today is like open source and collaboration over competition. And that's, that's definitely our approach. We want to we want to help other people get there. And that's why I'm even, I'm basically teaching our competition come September, how to pro project manage deconstruction. Um, because we know that the demand is there for multiple companies. Incredible. 
I like your style. Are there any disturbing trends or common failures, bad practices, see house after house that you'd want to call out? Absolutely. Um, I'd say the big one would be in the abatement, um, the, the abatement process of, of demolition. Um, so removing the asbestos primarily. Um, so one, one thing we see on, on every deconstruction, we usually have a few abatement callbacks. So we start to deconstruct the building. Oh, we found more asbestos here, more suspect materials. we got to test those. Um, and, and yeah, we normally have a few callbacks, which shows me that every demolition that happens, those callbacks don't happen because that building is just crunched. Um, so they never even find, oh, there was actually asbestos drywall in the crawl space over here. Um, so that's problematic because that means all of our demolitions happening, there's still asbestos in them. That's becoming airborne. So that's potentially toxic to the neighbors, the community. And then it's going downstream either to landfills or recycling depots where then workers are also exposed to it. So um, that's a big one for me. I, I, I would like to see WorkSafe and, and the, abatement, um, the, the, the abatement industry get more strict. Um, it's already pretty strict. And I know that's been a big, a big change for the industry over the last 15 years. But I mean, at the end of the day, if we're going to remove asbestos, we, we should remove 100% of it, not 80% of it, because no one's kind of looking for the last 20%. Um, so that's, that's the biggest one that people, um, the people miss. And, um, and then I mean, here in Vancouver, I, I think that there's been policy that was enacted in, in 2015, um, which is the green demo bylaw. And the intention is basically for deconstruction to, to take off. But um, really what it's done is it's greenwashed deconstruction. You have demolition contractors. Um, they have to hit certain salvage percentages and, and or uh, certain recycling percentages. And basically they're just fudging their receipts. Um, so the depot that receives their material is just saying, yeah, this will be hundred percent recycled and they get their recycling credits it's all going to landfill. So now the demo company can charge more to their con to their client. Cause they're saying, Oh, we got to deconstruct it. We got to recycle it. Now the city is saying you have to hit these percentages and they're handing in their receipts to say, look, we did, but the reality is the materials are still going to landfill. So it's really frustrating um, for us to feel like we're the only ones playing by the rules. And as I said, like, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're not, we're not sitting here making mountains of money, um, because we're playing by the rules and it's costly to do things correctly. So we, we're working with the municipalities on how do you actually, um, how do you ensure people are doing the right things? How do you make sure compliance is actually hit? And, uh, and, and that's a work in progress. There's been a fair amount of deception in the in the recycling world. Oh yeah, for the, for the people with plastic and where things actually end up, where the computer electronics end up being burned in a landfill in Africa or something. You yeah, know, there's been so much like that. That stigma needs to be well. A, it needs to be addressed as a as an issue that deception and and actually getting real numbers, not having the, the plant say, oh, it's recycled, but it went to the dump. But on an international scale as well, um, because there's gonna be skeptics as long as, there's, as long as there's deception, people are gonna remain skeptical, right? Yeah, well, and uh, two, two points on that. Yeah, they did, a, there was like a investigative report here in Canada on, on the plastic recycling. They found that only 8% of everything that goes, goes in our blue bin 
is actually recycled 8%. So, I mean, it's atrocious. And that's where we really try to separate between recycling because recycling is basically getting a bad name because people know there's a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. You're almost just pushing the problem down the road a little further to someone else where no one's looking. Um, but then on our sites, this is where the community, the neighbors get really excited because every day they're seeing wood pile up on our sites. They're seeing materials separated and they can tell we're actually doing what we say we're doing. Those materials are going to get a new life in the supply chain. That metal is going to get recycled because it's been separated from the other materials. Um, and that's where upcycling, salvaging um, is, is really, uh, it's, it, it's true to what it's supposed to be. And, and recycling is very gray in, in terms of what's actually happening behind the scenes. Why do skill trades matter? Uh, they, they, they matter at an extreme level. Um, we're, we're desperate for people and every single trade we work with, every builder and developer is, is looking for people. So, um, housing and buildings, there's, there's no, um, shortage of work and there's, there's going to be no shortage of buildings to continue to come. Um, which means we, we are going to continue to need skilled trades in, in a high level. And it's, for me, it's been really interesting in my life because I come from quite a white collar family. Typically um, I'm from the East. Everyone in my family was basically, you know, you were, you were to go to university. It wasn't even a question. And that even, even with my family, there was stigma against the trades. Um, and, and it's just so, I, I know that that stigma is, is thankfully changing and it really should because there's so many great people in the trades and there's so many great companies out there. And honestly, it's a, it's a fantastic profession. Every day is different. Um, you're using your mind, your body um, to, to solve problems and, and to do really great things. And um, yeah, construction, we are always going to need skilled trades in construction and um, it's, it's very valuable to, to society. So, um, I'm of the opposite mind. As I, said, I got a little, a little guy, and if he wants to go in skilled trades, I'm going to, I'm going to push him there. I think it's great. Uh, I did a university degree and it, it, I don't use my degree. Like had I spent those four years doing a trade, it, you know, I'd probably be better off to be honest. Um, that's not for everyone. A university is great for different professions, but, um, yeah, I, I, I'm happy to see the stigma around trade starting to diminish um, because there's great careers there and, and we all need our skilled trades desperately. 100%. What do you value most? Uh, well, I, I mean, I value my family the most, um, first and foremost. Um, I would say people, like both our, our, my family, my friends, and then our staff and, and our, our partners and our clients. Um, and then beyond the people, I would say it would be the planet. Um, I do, I'm a big time environmentalist outdoors person. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hiking, I'm skiing, I'm biking in my free time trail running. Um, and, and so to see, I mean, you're in Alaska, you, you're, we, we were talking about this before we, we started recording, um, to, to go to a glacier that you've been, you, you were at 10 years earlier and to see that it's half the size is, is shocking. And so I feel like, especially where, where we live on, on the coast here, we can see these changes happening in real time. And, and that, that motivates me because it terrifies me, to be honest. You know, I, I'm, 
I'm worried about the world that my son's going to grow up in, um, you know, 50 years down the line and then the next generation and the next generation. So, um, yeah, it's people are number one and I'd say planet would be number two. What do you want your legacy to be? I'm less concerned about my legacy as, you know, Adam Corneal versus Unbuilders legacy. I, I want Unbuilders to be remembered as the company that made deconstruction mainstream. I like it. All right. I'm going to guess your favorite tool and then we're going to talk about tools for a second. <laughs> uh, cat's paw. No, it's not your cat's paw. But... <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. and it's not a sledgehammer. It is. Go, I'd go say, ahead. What's your favorite tool? My favorite tool. Um, well, I'm, I'm also a woodworker, so I like make furniture mm -hmm. and, and products. So I, there's something really beautiful about the planer when you put in like a dirty old piece of wood and put it in the planer and then mm -hmm. get to the other side where it's come out and you get to see like that first layer taken off. I don't mm -hmm. know. There's something really magical about that. So I, I'd say I'd probably lean more on the, the backside of it and into the woodworking tools are, are what get me, gets me excited. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I remember being really excited about when I got my first planer, power planer. Yeah. I sent a piece of wood through and I sent it through a second time and found a nail. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we go through a lot of blades. Yeah. Uh, okay, what is your most useful tool? I mean, honestly, probably like an impact driver, to be honest. Um, but we, I mean, we're using sledgehammers and pry bars, not just cat's paws, but like the big pry bars um, the majority of the time. Um, so I, I, I would say it's still sledgehammers and pry bars are the most useful tool for us. For us. What's your, where have you been on my life tool? Well, we've got we've got nail kickers, which for anyone in deconstruction knows what they are, but they shoot the nails out of the wood. So it's like a reverse framing gun. Um, I'd say that one, once we like got heavily involved with nail kickers, that was one's like, wow, how did we not have these things earlier? Um, Cause they're a game changer. That is definitely going to be the most unique answer I get for this question ever, I think. And I don't <laughs> think any of us knew that a nail kicker existed until right now yeah so cool um what are the best job site snacks <laughs> um well my my diet is probably different than most because uh, i just eat, literally eat a big bowl of vegetables every day at lunch with two hard-boiled eggs but um i mean i'm our crew is always pretty happy when you roll in with a box of donuts um mm -hmm. and and you know and a thing of coffee so mm -hmm. i'd say that's Pretty typical. What are the best job site jams? Ooh, uh, especially our Vancouver Island crew more, more than our Vancouver crew. They, they, they've got the good beats going. Um, mm. yeah, I, I don't know something, something pretty upbeat or, uh, I mean a real variety. You can't listen to the same thing every day. So something upbeat for sure to keep the tempo, keep people moving either, either some good hip hop or some good rock. I'm down with that. Uh, what's the best live show you've ever seen? Um, whew. 
Well, I, I used to go to Dave Matthews in the gorge in Washington every year. He did mm-hmm. do three days in the gorge. Uh, I think, I think Dave Matthews band live is maybe the most incredible set of musicians that you can see. Um, but I just went to the Lumineers actually a couple of weeks ago and that show mm. was amazing. Um, so that's, that one's just fresh. I hadn't seen live music in a couple of years. So mm-hmm. just so, so great to be back in a, in a stadium with everyone. Um, but yeah, in general, I, I think Dave Matthews band might be just every time I've seen them, even three days in a row, you see them and they just, every night is incredible. Yeah, I used to see them in the nineties in Boulder, Colorado, uh, in at the Fox Theater before anybody really knew who they were, they were just some little band. Oh, nice! Yeah, what book are you reading? Uh, I'm reading a book called The Secret Life of Trees, and uh, it's uh, it's a it's a few biologists, but they they are showing how trees in the forest actually communicate communicates in scare quotes with each other, um, mostly by sharing nutrients and um, and water. And it, it's almost like Avatar toned down. Um, mm. It's actually happening in our forests. The, the trees are connected um, underneath the soil with mycelium. And um, it's honestly, it's mind blowing. When I, I saw um, one of the authors speak live a few years ago, and the first half of the talk was like, this, is, this isn't real, right? Like this is a fairy tale she's talking about. By the end, I, my mind was blown. So I... Um, there's a few books in this realm, but the secret life of trees is, is really fascinating to know um, what's actually going on in the forest and why, why it's so important to preserve our forests. Um, and, and even like our logging practices that selective logging versus just clear cutting is so crucial because there's all kinds of interlinking webs underneath the soil that we need to keep. There's a reason that like a tree in the downtown core that's surrounded by concrete, those trees only last 15 years and then they die and you got to replace them where that tree, if that tree is in the forest, it could last hundreds of years because it's connected. It's a community. And uh, it's a, just a beautiful metaphor for even humanity and, and life in general that, um, yeah, we, we thrive when we're connected. Absolutely. What question would you have for someone who came on this podcast? Um, I would say where where do you see where do you see the industry going? I'm always curious about yeah where, where different perspectives on um, on, on where construction is going. I, I love this industry. I'll, I'll always be in this industry, so I'm curious where other people see it going. Is there is there anyone you want to give a shout out to today? Um, I mean, I, I just give a shout out to, to my support, which is both, you know, my team, everyone that works, works for us. Um, we got a great, great group of people that are working for us. This is, um, you know, th- uh, this is not my company. This is our company. We're, we're a big collective group. Um, even though I'm, you know, I'm the owner, um, there's also our investors and then my, my support network, my, my wife and my family and my friends that, um, yeah, that keep, that keep me going and, and keep us going. Um, wouldn't be here without a big web of great people, you know, fighting for us, working for us, helping us. Well, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about Unbuilders Deconstruction. Such a cool project. Thank you. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. I, re- I really appreciate it, Michael. And for everybody out there listening, you can check out Adam Corneal's business and work at 
Unbuilders Deconstruction on Instagram and on their website. Yeah, unbuilders.com. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Today's shout-out goes to Jesse Jesso of Percy's Home Improvements out of St. John, New Brunswick. Thanks for the killer review, buddy. And if you guys are out there on Instagram, you can follow him at jesse underscore 15 underscore 17, where he's hoping to see the trades continue to rise. Of course, I would love you to leave me a review as well on Apple Podcasts or rate me on Spotify. If you don't use an iPhone, you can leave a review directly on my website. Today was the first time I asked someone what they wanted their legacy to be because I'm always going on and on about it's our legacy this, it's our legacy that. For him, it wasn't about himself. It was about Unbuilders being the company that started deconstruction in the construction industry. So ask yourself, what do I want my legacy to be? That's all I got. Later.